I don't know if you've listened to my podcast before, but sometimes there's a bit of explicit language, and this is one of those times. It's Wednesday, June 1st, 2022. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And today, Johnny Depp is $13 million net richer. Most importantly, a Virginia jury, I think, gave him back his career. I was, I'm going to say shocked by the verdict in the Johnny Depp-Amber Heard trial where they were both found to have defamed each other. But Depp was awarded $15 million by the jury. $5 million of that punitive verdict was reduced by statute under Virginia law. I was shocked because... I was informed by a couple of pieces that were actually outside the evidence of this jury, things like the UK courts finding against Johnny Depp, and they have a higher standard for proving defamation, the unlikelihood of Amber Heard or really anyone perpetuating a massive and ongoing scam, Johnny Depp's general demeanor, his substance abuse problems, he was shown to flail around and at least beat up in on inanimate objects. However, I didn't watch, read, or listen to all six weeks of the trial. Still, I could never, I talked about it here, I could never come out here in this space and say Amber Heard was abused. I do think it's more likely than not that she was abused, but I couldn't say that. And I would have if I thought there was really incontrovertible evidence. I am not one to default to, well, we always have to say allegedly, I'm not excessively worried about slander. Uh, In my past as a journalist, I've really fought back on saying allegedly when it's not just alleged, but it's uh, it's shown it's shown to be the truth. I once got into a fight with an NPR editor about my saying that Barry Bonds took performance-enhancing drugs, and he said, no, you got to say allegedly. I'm like, I do not have to say allegedly. Even Barry Bonds admits it. The dispute is if he knew that the substance he was given was a performance-enhancing drug, but I'm not going to excessively inject uncertainty when there seems to be certainty. But on this, I just couldn't be absolutely certain. Still, I do think that she was likely abused, though the jury saw it differently. And so point one is, I do in general think we have to defer to jury decisions. We should trust our institutions unless there's a real reason not to. I know that many people say, well, the real reason is that we live in the patriarchy and we've been taught all our lives that this doesn't happen. No, I just think there are great costs to go shopping for the verdicts we like or the verdicts we don't. If we do that, then how are we better than all the people who saw the verdict in that Michael Sussman trial brought by special prosecutor John Durham, who are of course, Trump acolytes and simply won't accept any jury verdict they don't want. There's another school of thought on this, which is uh, facts are facts and a thing happened or a thing didn't and juries either get it right or wrong and just call it as you see it. I think that especially because we didn't watch the whole trial, we should give credit to uh, a jury knowing that they are people and they can get it wrong, but they probably were a little more informed than all of us. Now, Some of us will not believe they were more informed because most of the people with the strongest opinions on this, at least in the world that I take my information from, which are op-ed columnists in, in outlets like the New York Times and the Washington Post and the New Yorker, many of the people most passionate about this trial are people who are most steeped in the nature and literature and studies of abuse. Now, here is... Not the problem with that, I'm in favor of all knowledge and against ignorance, but there are aspects to knowing so much about how abuse works and how abusers get away with it 
that perhaps falsely convince the person or the audience that they're really good at spotting when it happens or when it doesn't. I'll give you a couple examples. The same kind of people who are most apt to think that Amber Heard was lying would say something like, well, why would anyone stay with him if he was abusing her? And that's very frustrating to someone who's very familiar with the literature because they know that happens all the time. And there have been studies on this. And the victim often feels in the thrall and in control of the abuser. But that's when the victim is the victim. In this case, the question was, was she not the victim? Did he never abuse her? And I would say, even if you know everything there is to know about how abusers control their victims, you don't know that much about when the situation is not happening, when it's a false allegation. There hasn't been a study of falsely accused abusers and the behavior of the supposed victims in that circumstance. I'll give you another example of how being steeped in the literature won't actually help you figure out, was this all a lie? DARVO. Do you know the term DARVO? It's uh, an acronym that stands for Deny, Attack, Reverse, Victim, and Offender. It's a commonly used tactic by abusers to, common term now is gaslight, but put the blame on the person that they are abusing. And there are studies on this. And a large percentage of abusers engage in DARVO tactics. However, there have been no studies on non-abusers who are accused of abuse. But when you think about just examples in the real world, DARVO, kind of an overly technical acronym to just explain a common type of denying wrongdoing, right? It's, I know you are, but what am I? That essentially is DARVO. Think about Mallory uh, McMorrow. She was the Michigan legislator who was falsely accused of grooming. Didn't she engage in DARVO? Didn't she say, well, I deny that I'm a, I'm a groomer. She, she wasn't. I attack you. How dare you call me an abuser? And she was right to do that. I'm actually the victim here. You are the offender for making those false accusations. So what is the presence or knowledge that DARVO is a tactic used by abusers? How does it really inform us or tell us the truth of the question when the crux is, is this allegation uh, based in fact or just a concoction of the alleged abused party. Last thing I was thinking about is just the nature of acting. If, as I believe, Amber Heard really was abused, well, what about her performance on the stand? That was some terrible acting. But she's a professional actress. She knows how to act. See, the thing is, I don't think that what we regard as great acting is convincingly lying to a crowd of onlookers. I think a lot of people maybe think, well, what what is acting? What is it really, really doing? Oh, you're embodying how a person experienced something would react and you're showing that reaction on your face so that other humans can say, wow, they're really going through that thing. I don't actually think that's what acting is. I think what acting is, what the acting we take pleasure in is our perception of how someone might react, but most importantly, as played out on the face of a compelling figure. It can mean beautiful as compelling or can be compelling, Steve Buscemi, compelling in other ways. But when we see that played out on a face of an actor in a way that we say to ourselves, oh yeah, that's how people might react. We call that great acting. But that is very different from actually behaving how people actually would if they were in that circumstance. 
I could, uh, I'll give you examples of this at a later time. I was in a live taping of when Artie Lang was on the Joe Buck show and he said something shocking. And I had presence of mind to look to my left just to gauge the audience's reaction. And everyone was in an open-mouthed stupor, the likes of which that if you tried it on camera, a director would say, cut, what are you doing? You look like a cartoon. But that's how everyone actually looked. So I think Amber Heard, if she was lying, wasn't being a bad actress because that's what actors or actresses actually do all the time. They embody the experience of someone else or a fictional character. And if she was actually telling the truth, I don't think she was a bad actress. I just think acting isn't what maybe most people think acting is. I don't think it's necessarily the actor's ability to convey the actual experience of a person who went through the thing. I mean, the last point on that is just look at Amber Heard's reaction to the verdict. This was among the most crushing moments of her life. And she sat there somewhat unexpressive, I guess because unlike what the jury came to believe about her relationship with Johnny Depp, that wasn't a performance. On the show today, I spiel about one conservative conspiracist who had a big role in advancing the idea that Hillary Clinton was the chief spymaster. But first, Russia is faced with an oil embargo from the EU. McDonald's is out, H&M, Uniqlo, Adidas, Ikea, Intel, Uber, BP. I can't even list them all. But maintaining the list is Yale University and Professor Jeffrey Sonnenfeld. He joins me once more on The Gist to talk about shame and sanctions in Russia. Here to tell you about one of the most attractive automobiles you're ever going to lay your eyes on. And it's not just how good it looks. It's everything that can do. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior, which won me over, is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing. The interior is built with integrity using the most robust of materials. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. The Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. Cargo capacity means you got room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to do what you do via your intellect, via your passions in life. It is to explore with greater confidence. Ready for a wide range of adventures? The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, the Defender 130 that seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. You may know Jeffrey Sonnenfeld from such credentials as being the dean of the Yale School of Management, the author of many years ago, Corporate Views of the Public Interest, or such recent newspaper articles as how Yale professor Jeffrey Sonnenfeld got companies to pull out of Russia. I thought it was sanctions. Turns out it was Jeffrey Sonnenfeld. Hello. Welcome back to The Gist. Tell me how you did it. Oh, thanks. The... um... Governmental uh, sanctions are something apart. Those are economic sanctions that were forbidding certain targeted types of investment and industries and things 
But in fact, there were a, a number of companies that on their own, actually about a dozen of them, uh, and I was talking with three or four of the CEOs involved in that, but was surprised at who the others. This was early on. The war broke out, as you know, February 24th. And right away, of all things, the oil industry, uh, professional services industry, uh, and big tech. But like big oil and big tech, you don't usually, Mike, as you know, see them on the frontiers of social change. And there they were uh, on a social justice issue. And the professional service firms would usually, you know, rather jump off a cliff than get involved in any kind of geopolitical controversy. It was staggering that those were the ones, not the consumer goods companies, not the restaurants, fragrances, fashion, others that usually are get uh, have a more sensitive mind to what's in the public sentiment. In fact, if big oil that being on often on the wrong side of climate change issues and pollution uh, concerns uh, wanted to get this one right for various reasons. And big tech, of course, with their problems with uh, antitrust and privacy and uh, hate speech, as we're reminded again right now, uh, also wanted to get ahead of this one. I think the the type the Gen Z generation has something to do with this, and certainly with the professional service firms that don't have to worry about consumer boycotts for the most part, and most of them are private, so they don't face uh, backlash from investors, are so very sensitive to uh, the image of their company in the eyes of new recruits as they they thrive on them. Some of them hire 50, 60,000 people a year uh, as, as Gen Z new recruits. And uh, we know one thing about Gen Z, it seems so far to hold up that where they where they shop and where they invest and also where they choose to work has a lot to do with the social image of the company. Right. So I want to ask you about your list, which has grown and I think gotten a little more nuanced. Uh, it's grown to a thousand companies and you're tracking them. And it's essentially a naming and shaming effort. And it's worked well. Companies have been driven out. And as as you note, not just in fig leaf, toe touch ways, Exxon broke with Rosneft, which was a major, hey, Exxon's doing great now because of oil prices. And maybe they saw that we can survive this, but they really did take a huge um, financial write down, even if they thought their long term interests were represented by it. But at least early on, I was a little worried that some of the companies on the list were being unfairly uh glopped together with other companies that had much more interest and for whom it was much easier for them to leave. I was worried about, for instance, Subway. I was worried about there'd be a boycott against local owned and operated Subway when their parent corporation had essentially just sold the rights to the name Subway to some Russian franchises. So do you think the, uh, first of all, let me ask it in a two parts. Do you think a company like Subway shouldn't have been amassed together with a company like Coke Industries? And do you think the list is communicating a little bit of more subtle points uh, these days. Going to the franchise or franchisee issue is one of the tougher ones, but uh, I don't find it persuasive. There are things that can be done. For example, Subways what refused, and they're my neighbors here in Milford, Connecticut. I, I'm in Branford, Connecticut, either side of New Haven, Connecticut. And yet still, they stubbornly insist on staying in there, not even doing the minimal that companies like Yum Brands would do with a thousand KFCs, there are actually more subways, I believe, there than there are, than there are KFCs. But uh, things, what can you do? Even with the ridiculously overly broad franchise agreements that were rewritten 20 years ago in a misguided uh, idealistic notion of post-perestroika, we could talk about if you have the time or interest to get into that. But there's a belief that somehow these Western brands were going to be bringing social harmony uh, to uh, East and West, that they somehow a bridge of capitalism. Uh, so what we thought we were going to be getting there 
was uh, that uh, somehow by not having a force majeure clause, which is basically act of nature, that it allows you to void out a the, the, the contract or at least revise it uh, for change of government and stuff. They took all that out. So what, what they still could do is Yum realized they could curtail uh, IT uh, investments into, uh, into uh, Russia, uh, not subways. Now they mm-hmm. do, but not subways for, for months. Similarly, they could. So they were still supporting their franchise. Intellectual they, property, yeah, marketing, yeah. all that stuff. They're still supporting. They didn't have to do that. But when I talked to the CEO of Starbucks, who had the exact same relationships and franchise agreements, they were more creative. They thought, you know what? If BP took $25 billion of write down and Exxon uh, $7 billion and Shell $5 billion, it's not going to cost us anything like that to just buy out this franchisee, these franchisees. And, and shut them down that way, which is what they did. They paid them to stop working, stop using the franchise uh, name and stop providing Starbucks there. So Subways could do that, but didn't. And their competitors did. Now, Subways has modestly done something by now, but it took a lot of that public shaming uh, uh, that made the difference. I think they're now a D rather than an F on the list. Yes, yeah, it's, it's exactly right. They've cut out future investments, but you know, just between you and me and all your listeners is the D category is not all that different from the F because a lot of them said we're going to curtail some future generic, uh, vague, long-term investments that have never been announced before. And uh, we don't know where, how long and what it is. But legally, we had to acknowledge that at least they they made reference to the war and that they were going to somehow do cur- curtail something uh, regarding Russia. But Basically, their still business operations are, are pretty much unchanged as the D's as they are as the F's. There are a couple of uh, names on the list that I don't know if I should say I was surprised at, but it seemed like it, it seems to me it wouldn't be too hard for them to get out of Russia. One is Coke Industries. They don't want to. One is Lacoste, the fashion brand. Other fashion brands have gotten out. The French industries seem more likely to stay in than American industries. But I was very interested to see that the match group, you know, from the dating app is still operating in Russia. What's their rationale? I just don't know what they're thinking about Russian husbands or brides and things like that, or what's being marketed. You just almost wonder about some illicit use of some of these sites when you take a look at uh, what what tends to happen, as I'm told, uh, with the link to the porn site. So Lord knows what they, what's really going on there, if there's something that's even worse, because it makes no sense. Matches there uh, that you you have a, a company uh, like, uh, uh, as you mentioned, uh, some of the fashion companies, Versace, you could add to the list uh, uh, and uh, Benetton. What in the world is Benetton doing there? Uh, it's, it is ridiculous. But it's interesting that you mention any of the fashion companies or some of these rem- few remaining Internet sites is that those are the companies that are usually most sensitive to social trends as opposed to oil and big tech and professional services. And in this case, the fashion companies across the board were late. They eventually moved, most of them. And the food companies, as you got into subways, usually on the on the on the edge of, of social justice issues, were very late. Yeah. Uh, and and consumer goods in general, it was, it was surprising. So what is it? Is it something about the fashion? Uh, you know, something at such a low price point like Subway. Let's talk economics. Uh, a sandwich like that is pretty fungible. You know, you could go to a competitor pretty easily. So maybe that's why generally they're more sensitive to social trends. It doesn't cost much in America to put up a sign supporting this or that movement. I don't know. Maybe in Russia, the costs were at least perceived as to be different. 
Well, some of it was the franchise agreements, but then, you know, you take a look at something like Papa John's where the franchisee there is actually an American. Uh, so, you know, it, it isn't that it's locally owned or something like that. And then you take a look at McDonald's, which you saw the news uh, just recently. Uh, McDonald's has just finally fully pulled out permanently, but they did suspend. They were a B and then I'll just become an A. Uh, but they they were reluctant to even suspend for several weeks. And unlike the franchisees in this uh, franchisors in this business, McDonald's owned 860 restaurants. And I think some of it was these branded goods like uh, the fashion companies and the food companies were caught up in this you know, perestroika mindset where, where perestroika, you remember, was the restructuring and the meltdown of the old Soviet Union. Right. Glasnost was the media opening. Perestroika was to be the economic opening. And both of those things didn't really come to pass in a full way. No, exactly right. And these brands were to represent some sort of defiance against the old uh, Soviet repression. So th these represented in people's minds freedom. And you remember Tom Friedman of the New York Times uh, talked about the double arches, uh, you know, the golden arches rather of diplomacy that uh, foolishly that no two countries with the McDonald's have ever gone to war with each other. Surely he must forget all the time he spent in the Middle East and, and what we know from the history, recent history in Africa and Central Europe is that the lack of casual dining was never the problem behind the violence. Right now, there are 150 uh, you, uh, uh, McDonald's in Ukraine and there are 860 in Russia. So, but they were all, they're pretty much all owned by the parent company. I don't know Chris Kapinski, the CEO of McDonald's. He seems to be a great guy. He's a little late to figure this thing out, but he did figure it out. And I give him a lot of credit for that. And they pulled out and others can do the same thing. Yeah. And of course, you remember who first violated the, the Golden Arches theory. It was Russia during their war with uh, South Ossetia to McDonald's owned uh, countries or McDonald's operating countries. I want to ask you about an op-ed you wrote. Very good. Extra credit on that one. <laughs> Thank you. Yale School of Management. Here I come. Uh, I want to ask you about an op-ed you wrote in the Washington Post. And you looked at the stock market returns and market capitalization of companies that got A's and B's on your list and companies that got. D's and F's. And it is true that the more likely a company is to stick with their Russian uh, business, the worse they were doing. However, I was wondering if you were proving that getting out is the right choice, even financially, or you were just showing something that intuition would lead us to, which is the more exposure you have or have to have to the Russian market, the worse you're going to do. Let's compare Turkish Airways to Delta. Delta announced early on, even before the war started, we're getting out, but Delta had no flights uh, in Russia. They operated in conjunction with Aeroflot to some extent. Turkish Airways has five flights and they're getting an F but is the point, ah, they chose not to get out of Russia, or is more the point that they have so much income based on the Russian economy, of course they're going to be doing worse? American has major servicing agreements, uh, for example, going in, into Russia. They cut, they cut off at the same time as Delta, and United did have ex more, way more flights than Turkish Air by a factor of 10, and they, and they cut it out, and their stock is, was, you know, all because the whole market's pretty much down these days, but they're doing so much better. And you can look at paired comparisons, whether or not you want to take a look at, at, at the energy industry. You can think, well, of course, we're, you know, energy is soaring right now relative to everything else. Not if you're Fran France's Total Energy, which are perfectly parallel to Shell or Exxon. Those guys pulled out and surrendered uh, five and seven billion dollars apiece to write down the pull out. Uh, and yet Total stayed in there and, and they've been plummeting. I think there is a great investor concern over the risks uh, of staying there 
and the reputation damage in staying there is significant. Uh, but I think that um, the I think the reason the companies uh, pulled out wasn't that they had any idea that shareholders would reward them so handsomely for doing the right thing. But this does seem to be one of those clear times where uh, doing good and doing well are not antithetical to each other. They match pretty nicely here. So is there a bigger lesson in how to make sanctions work? Because in general, they don't. And I know that it was formative for you to see uh, sanctions and protests against South Africa. That was one of the few cases where they really did work. Very few cases, the experts say. But what I'm thinking of is, you know, when it comes to the Pentagon and the Department of Defense, all the generals will say there is a great role for the State Department and the diplomats. But I wonder, with the analogy of sanctions being the the economic version of a military strike. Maybe there needs to be more of the public diplomacy version. Maybe you're providing a use case that if you could do more to get attention to the sanctions, there it can serve as a force multiplier for the sanctions. Really well said. There's no bloodshed behind this. So uh, people who, who wonder about the human humanitarian impact, and, and we can talk about this, about making life more difficult for the average uh, citizen in Russia who is not Vladimir Putin. Yeah, that's the whole idea, is that this is something short of sending bullets and bombs into those Russians, is this is a, a very effective alternative way of, of halting an autocratic uh, regime. This is, in fact, uh, not limited to the success of South, South Africa, but many people would conclude that because a lot of foreign policy experts have been frustrated uh, about uh, problems with the, uh, su the success of the, the, you know, the economic sanctions against Iran or other places like that. What happened in India? It was uh, Gandhi uh, stopped civil society. Uh, that's what led to the change. In uh, ambulances couldn't get to the hospitals. It was, everything was blocked. Uh, Nikolai Ceausescu was broken down. Western businesses pulled out for various reasons. Some of them said, "We don't want to do business." where it's the, the rule of leaders instead of where it's the rule of law instead of the, the law of, of rulers is that they wanted to be someplace where they felt that they could trust the, the business practices and uh, a sense of social harmony. So Nikolai Ceausescu of, of, uh, of Romania, Eric Honecker of East Germany, uh, Jaruzelski in Poland, is that where we have seen relatively bloodless, you know, there maybe 97 people were killed in Poland with solidarity and Lech Walesa's struggles, but it was relatively bloodless uh, it was, in fact, exactly this. It was the marriage of economic sanctions with voluntary business boycotts. It's really important to stress that this is fully voluntary. There's no arm twist or, 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 or pressure to have to do this uh, because of, of, of government uh, insistence. In fact, these are companies that have come to these conclusions on their own. And what it does is you get a, a really uh, a tyrannical, bloody leader like, uh, like Putin you can go after him with war to take on his coercive slaughter of people, uh, or you can you can try to halt and want to be totalitarian in their place by undercutting them by showing that they don't have total control of civil society. So if you can stop civil society, just the companies, by the way, that we have on this list, taking out all the governmental economic sanctions, throwing them out the window, uh, is that this is already 45% of Russia's economy, these 1,200 companies. 45%. People think oil, and I see this on all the time, that oil is, is, is approaches energy is 20% of, of Russia's GDP. It's not. It's 17%. This is way more than even the energy business. And as this comes to a halt, as you can see, today's New York Times has a piece 
There's some, that was just taking a look there at, at the, the numbers, the millions of people that are being idled now on the streets. That's having an impact. And they're going to start to ask questions and be angry. Uh, it, is this going to hurt the average Russian? Yes, let's hope so. I want to ask you a question from an economic and ethical standpoint. What do you think of banning individual runners in the Boston Marathon, tennis players for Wimbledon or the U.S. Open, the official, um, the ATP, the Pro Tennis Tour, the WTA has come out against it. It doesn't seem that different from what we're talking about. Is there anything that I'm missing? No, is sports is a major field of commerce and, and there's no reason to grant them an exemption. Uh, it's sort of like an argument some people had in the midst of, of, of school, school shutdowns with the COVID epidemic and the early surge before we had any vaccines or, 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 or drug th therapies out there is that somehow exempt the gladiator athletes and, and just force the scientists to smash their, their test tubes and leave the labs and, but keep the athletic tournaments going. No, sports shouldn't be exempted. They should be uh, same with cultural ambassadors of all sorts is that if, these, if this country is to be shunned, they should be shunned across the board. And, and that's how the country gets the message. And Jeffrey Sonnenfeld will be back tomorrow as we pivot from the pressure on Russia to pressure on U.S. companies to engage in what some, including Jeffrey Sonnenfeld himself, call woke capital. That's tomorrow. There are over 90,000 people missing at any time, and over half a million are reported missing every year. And that's just in the United States. I'm Mike Morford. And I'm Jess Betancourt. And in our podcast, Missing Persons, we discuss cases of people who have gone missing under mysterious circumstances. And we're joined in each episode by guests who are either related to the missing person, investigating their disappearance, or advocating for answers in the case. Missing Persons is available everywhere you listen to podcasts, and there are dozens of episodes to binge on right now. Subscribe today so you don't miss an episode. We've all seen the headlines in the news of how someone lost their life in an act of cold-blooded murder. And while it's sad and grabs your attention, most people go on with their day without giving it another thought. But have you ever stopped to think about the life of the person at the center of the news story? They were more than just a headline or a statistic. They were someone's loved one or friend. I'm Mike Morford, and my podcast, The Murder of My Family, dives into some of those stories to help listeners get to know the person who was lost and how their death affected those closest to them. Listen to The Murder of My Family everywhere you listen to podcasts. There are well over 100 episodes to binge on now. And now the spiel. The verdict is in. It was a trial that followers obsessed over. More seemed to be on the line than a rendering of a mere verdict. Enthused, bordering on crazed watchers, looked to the jury to vindicate their worldview. Fanatics who had parasocial obsessions with their hero have turned unremarkable lawyering into moments of great drama, amplified within their media silos, and in the end, Johnny lost. I'm talking about Johnny Durham. Special prosecutor failed in his attempt to convict Michael Sussman of one charge of lying to an FBI official. What else could I have meant? The Durham conviction of Michael Sussman would build a foundation of nabbing more and more powerful Democrats. I guess I'm skipping over the conviction part. But to hear Trump loyalist and former appointee Cash Patel tell it to talk show host Charlie Kirk back in mid-May, the conviction was in the bag. Sussman gets indicted. Yes mm -hmm. or no? What do you think? It's a D.C. jury. I'm not indicted. I'm sorry. Convicted. convicted. I'm sorry. Yes, he gets convicted. Patel was convicted. So convicted 
He spent much of that interview bragging about the billboard he had just bought in Times Square to emphasize the breadth of the Durham investigation. Durham Watch, he called it, though I see no evidence of the billboard's existence. Anyway, he talked it up a good deal. He did characterize the Durham investigation as an effort to uncover the most consequential investigation in U.S. history. Patel, who worked for Devin Nunes as a congressional investigator and then rose to chief of staff of the Secretary of Defense in the Trump administration, has since written a children's book about a King Donald being plotted against. On The Kirk Show, he laid out how he thought this plot would be uncovered. No, and, that, and that's, that's why it's so smart to start here, because the next series of indictments that I think he's bringing are part of the conspiracy. The Andy McCabe, the Peter Strzok, those are yeah. hard to lay out. But if you get the guy at the base of the pyramid who was in charge of all the money and who initially lied. Yeah, but, but he has no leverage, though, over him, though, right? It's not. It's building, it's building the conviction basis. It's not that you're Is that using, right? Yeah, it's okay. not that you're so, using so, so build that out for me. I don't, I don't quite Yeah, understand. so like, look, a mob case, right? Everybody's seen Godfather or whatever. When you go after the top guys in the mafia in New York. You go after the bag man first. You go after the bag man. You go after the money guy. You go after the guy who drove them around. Yeah, that that didn't actually happen in The Godfather. But you don't really need a reference to a work of fiction to explain a real-world phenomenon if the real-world phenomenon is also a work of fiction. Unless you believe that this was just one undersecretary of defense turned sycophantic Romana Clef author. It goes way deeper than that. The Cash Patel narrative is the mindset of all of Trump world, and more broadly, the right. Jim Jordan was on Fox talking about a massive conspiracy. You think about they spied on a presidential campaign. That's as wrong as it gets. But then we found out from this filing that they actually spied on a sitting president, which is even worse. And where did Jordan get that idea that Durham was even alleging such a widespread spying effort? It was from a certain conservative commentator who spread the idea that, quote, the Hillary Clinton campaign and her lawyers masterminded the most intricate and coordinated conspiracy against Trump when he was both a candidate and later president of the United States. And, quote, the lawyers worked to infiltrate Trump Tower and White House servers. Who was this conservative commentator? Cash Patel. You mentioned John. Fox Rackley News interviewed Johnny Patel, then used his um, inaccurate word infiltration, which wasn't in the Durham filing, to spread the idea that the special prosecutor was alleging spying on Trump while he was president. That wasn't true. Well, not only was it not true, Durham didn't even say it. But the idea went from invented to repeated to cemented. This tech company obtained a sensitive arrangement with um, the United States government to infiltrate the White House servers. Yes, that is absolutely what happened. That is not what happened. And for anyone that wants to attack us, they're saying, they're not my words, they're saying John They absolutely are your words, but please go on. That means that uh, Hillary Clinton campaign's lawyers uh, got together with the United States intelligence community because that's the only way you can get an arrangement to spy or infiltrate White House servers. John Durham lost his case. Cash Patel never had one. Of course, in the justice system, a jury renders a verdict. In the pro-Trump ecosystem, nothing is ever falsifiable and therefore never dies. Just goes on for eternity as a grievance to nurse or a billboard in Times Square. And that's it for today's show. A lot of the information I just cited about Patel was put together by Glenn K. 
Kessler in the Washington Post. Uh, soon after it happened, great analysis there, and I wanted to give it credit. Also, if you want to give me credit or just say something about your favorite podcast on the Apple chart, do it. Go to the iTunes site, leave a review. Does it help people find the podcast? Everyone says so. I think listening to the end helps people find the podcast. You know who helps me do the podcast? Why? It's Corey Wara, assistant producer of The Gist. Joel Patterson, senior producer of The Gist. Michelle Pesca is regional branch manager for Alpha Bank and the main branch of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast for advertising inquiries. Go to advertisecast.com slash The Gist. Oom-peru, peru and thanks for listening.